in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And Tech Stuff listener Juan asked that I do an episode covering an important developer and businessman in the video game world. He cut his teeth working on games for George Lucas's video game company, and he went on to create some of the most innovative, quirky, and beloved games you can find on store shelves. His name is Tim Schafer. My first experience playing a game that Tim Schafer worked on was The Curse of Monkey Island, which was the third game in the Monkey Island series. I had heard of the previous two games and even played them a little bit, and those were ones that Tim Schafer had worked on more extensively, but I didn't own those games at the time. But the world of Monkey Island, with its goofy protagonist Guybrush Threepwood, the numerous comedic piratical stereotypes and the bizarre puzzles, caught my attention and delighted me. But for many years, I didn't know much about Schaefer, who gets a credit for, quote, additional design, end quote, on the game. So this episode is all about Schaefer, the game developer, and Schaefer, the businessman, and we start in California in 1967. Timothy John Schaefer grew up in Sonoma, California. He has four siblings, all of whom are older, with a four-year gap between him and the next youngest. The age gap meant Tim didn't get the opportunity to play a lot of board games his siblings had played. His brother was nine years older, still is, in fact, nine years older than he is, and a 15-year-old boy doesn't really want to sit down and play games with a six-year-old. But luckily for Tim, something came along that made it easier to play games on your own. Video games. Tim told U.S. Gamer in an interview in 2015 that he remembered visiting arcades with his dad back in the early 70s. His earliest memory involving video games was of an arcade game called Space Race, which he discovered at a summer camp called Blair Camp Blue. Space Race was a simple two-player game in which each player controls a rocket ship. The screen is divided into two vertical panels side by side, and your job is to pilot your spaceship on your side from the bottom of the screen to the top. Meanwhile, obstacles like asteroids would fly across the screen left to right. You could only make your rocket move up or down the screen, and if you got a hit, your rocket would reappear at the bottom after a short delay. Getting to the top would score a point. Rounds would last a certain amount of time, variable according to the arcade game owner, and little Tim Schafer found the game fascinating. He soon learned to love other arcade games. His dad shared a fascination with the technology and would take Tim with him to visit various arcades and other places that had arcade cabinets. In that same U.S. Gamer piece, Schaefer said that earlier arcade machines that he loved included Night Drive, Atari Stunt Cycle, which had a handlebar-type controller, and Space Panic. Things really changed for Schaefer when his family purchased a Magnavox Odyssey game console. This was the first home video game console to become commercially available. It officially hit the market in 1972. The Odyssey was pretty limited. All right, well, that's an understatement. It could not create sound. It was monochromatic. It could display four whole elements on screen at once. Two of those would be dots or bars that the players could control using the Odyssey controllers, which were little boxes that had dials for user input. The third element was a dot that the Odyssey itself would control, such as the ball in a game of Pong. So the two dots that the players could control would be the paddles, the dot that the computer is controlling is the ball, and the fourth element it could display was a vertical line. 
and that would serve as different things for different games. It could act as the center line of a game of Pong, so sort of like the net in tennis, or it could serve as the edge of a handball court. You had a little dial that you would use to adjust where the vertical line was supposed to appear on the screen, and all games were really just some sort of variation on Pong, ultimately. Shaver found the technology really interesting, and he also liked the overlays that came with the Odyssey. You would get these clear plastic overlays with designs on them, and you would put those on your TV screen, and they would stick to it due to static cling, and the overlays would create visuals that the Odyssey couldn't produce on its own. So you might have one that looks like a castle, for example, and then you're, I don't know, playing Pong inside a castle. The magic of video games. A little bit later, the family purchased an Atari 2600. Schaefer talked about how he would love to play a game without even looking at the instructions. And that the period of confusion he would experience while trying to suss out the game was one of his favorite experiences. It would become one of the elements of his own game design philosophy, to build in elements into games that would require the player to try different things, to adopt and abandon various approaches in order to progress through the game, and to include consequences for those actions that would be almost as entertaining as finding the right solution. So if you did something wrong, you at least knew that you had done something, as opposed to just randomly pushing buttons. Schaefer, like many of his video game designer peers, gradually began to not just play games, but also learn how to build code and programs. Schaefer's first work was on an Atari 800, the home computer that Atari had put out, and that used the 6502 assembly language, not exactly an intuitive programming language. Assembly language falls into a category called low-level programming language. That means it's not that far off from basic machine code. That's the language that a computer actually, quote-unquote, understands. The problem with machine code is that it's not easy for humans to work with. So we humans have designed various programming languages to help create an abstract way to manipulate information in order to make processors do what the programmer wants the processor to do. Assembly languages do this, but at a pretty low level, something close to the original machine language. Each assembly language is specific to a particular style of computer architecture. So you can't port it over from one type of computer architecture to another. The literal architecture of the computer will not understand that assembly language. Schaefer's interest in computers and programming stuck with him throughout his childhood. And he graduated high school and then was accepted into the University of California at Berkeley and chose computer science as his major. He would later say that he most enjoyed several of the classes that were outside the realm of computer science, such as creative writing, English literature, and anthropology. And while he was attending class at the university, he happened to see a job opportunity posted at the school's career center. The opportunity was to apply to be a playtester for Lucasfilm Games, which would later become LucasArts. And yes, it's George Lucas. Longtime fans of Tech Stuff will know that we once did a full episode about being a playtester many, many years ago. Playtesters have a job that, on first glance, sounds like it would be a lot of fun. You play video games for a living, and better yet, you play games that are so new, they aren't even available for purchase. You get to play them before anyone else does, while it's still being built. And you get paid for it. That sounds like a dream job, right? 
It certainly can be fun at times, but playtesting can also be frustrating and repetitive, particularly if the game has design flaws. Playtesters are supposed to look for bugs and glitches as they play. Are there any game-breaking problems? Are there issues with the game engine? Is it possible to get stuck somewhere just because of level design or some other issue? Is the game's path a clear one? Is it playable? Is it fun? It might mean playing the same section of the same level dozens of times for several hours as you poke and prod, testing a game to make sure it will hold up once it's released. And even the best playtester may overlook something. The goal is to find as many problems as you can before you ship so you can fix them because once it's out in the wild, you have hopefully thousands or millions of people playing your game. And at that scale, people are bound to find bugs and glitches. So your best hope is to weed out the most prevalent ones in an effort to deliver the best game possible. Schaefer decided to apply for the position and landed a phone interview with David Fox, one of the founding members of the game company. And it was a bit of a rocky interview. How? Well, I'll tell you. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So there's Tim Schaefer, and he's on the phone with David Fox. Fox had worked on games like Labyrinth, Zack McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders, and Rescue on Fractalus, among others. Schaefer, in an effort to present himself as an enthusiastic potential employee, stated that he had really enjoyed playing the LucasArts game Ball Blasters. And there was problem number one. Ball Blasters was a pirated version of a game released by LucasArts. The official game's name was Ball Blazer. But in 1983, Lucasfilm Games had handed over an early build of Ball Blazer to Atari. After that, someone had mysteriously pulled the code off the game and uploaded it to a bulletin board system, or BBS. Soon, copies of the game began popping up on other BBSs, and people were downloading it for free. And it was this version that Schaefer had played, the pirated version. Ugh. So awkward moment number two happened when Schaefer admitted he had not played Zack McCracken. That was awkward because David Fox had actually been the lead on Zack McCracken. Ugh, again. Schaefer walked out of the interview, or rather hung up the phone, convinced that he had totally blown it. He had not been prepared, he had admitted to piracy, and he may as well have said, Star Wars stinks. But Schaefer decided to at least have a little fun with his experience. He was invited to send in his resume and a cover letter, and instead he drew up a cartoon strip slash text adventure style document on paper. So he illustrated it, but it was done in the style of an old text adventure game where he as a character was trying to land a job at Lucasfilm Games. And through the process, he makes all the right decisions and he ends up getting the job. And he sent that to Lucasfilm. Whether Fox was secretly amused by this interview or the comic strip gave him insight into Schaefer's character, he decided to hire Schaefer for the position of playtester. And Schaefer's first gig was beta testing Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the action game. 
but soon he was tapped by a designer named Ron Gilbert to learn the game engine that Lucasfilm Games had been using at that time. The game engine had the name Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion, or SCUM. So Schaefer became a scumlet. The team was working on a port of Maniac Mansion for the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES. The game originally came out for home computers in 1987 and featured a point-and-click interface to navigate through the world, explore environments, and solve puzzles. The game included many innovative features. For example, in the game, you can choose two companions from a pool of six potentials to help you in your missions. Who you choose affects the way you must complete the game, and so player choice actually had an impact on how the game plays out. After working on the port, Schaefer got an invitation from Gilbert to work on the next project, which was a pirate-themed adventure game. He would join another up-and-coming star at LucasArts named David Grossman. And originally, the game was meant to be a pretty serious homage to Treasure Island. It was more or less a straight-laced pirate tale, kind of grim and gritty. Schaefer was brought on as a programmer and a writer for the project. While building the game, Schaefer and Grossman started to insert temporary placeholder dialogue just so that something was there. It wasn't meant to represent the final game, and their impish sense of humor meant they threw in a lot of jokes. Pirates who were meant to be scurvy dogs who inspired fear and all who met them transformed into oddball characters with silly names and dialogue options. Schaefer's temporary dialogue was such a huge hit so much so that Gilbert actually decided to change directions with the game and make it a comedic action-adventure set in a pirate world. And thus, The Secret of Monkey Island was born. In the game, you play as Guybrush Threepwood, a bit of a dweeb, who wants to become a pirate. Threepwood's nemesis is the evil pirate LeChuck. Through a series of weird adventures, odd puzzles, and lots of jokes, the player eventually faces down LeChuck, and through the power of carbonated beverages, stands triumphant. The game received good reviews and a positive response from players, and so the same creative team got together to work on a sequel, The Secret of Monkey Island 2, LeChuck's Revenge. Grossman and Schaefer worked well together and impressed the executives at LucasArts, so the two were given the opportunity to act as project co-leads on a new game, a sequel to Maniac Mansion called Day of the Tentacle. This was a comedic time travel adventure, and it too received positive response. Schaefer's work on the Monkey Island games and Day of the Tentacle convinced LucasArts that he should be allowed to work on a project of his very own. Schaefer decided to create a game that would incorporate one of his favorite genres of music, heavy metal. That game was called Full Throttle, which was released in 1995. And it featured an outlaw biker accused of a crime he didn't commit, but still contained a lot of humor as well, one of Schaefer's uh, trademarks, you might say. And Schaefer acted as lead developer on Full Throttle, writing and programming much of the game himself. It was one of the earliest games to feature a fully voiced game script, meaning every line was spoken by a character in the game delivered by a voice actor. Up to that point, most games relied heavily on text, which wasn't nearly as resource-intensive and obviously did not require voice actors. 
You might spice up a cutscene or something like that with a little voice acting, but it was extremely rare to find a game that included voice acting all the way through. And the voice actors included some folks you'd recognize, at least by voice, if not by name. Maurice LaMarche and Tress McNeil both provided voices for the game, as did the Jedi Master himself, Mark Hamill. Full Throttle also made use of licensed music, something that was new for LucasArts. The music came from a San Francisco rock band called The Gone Jackals. Gameplay was in a 2D playing field and featured the point-and-click interface adventure gamers were used to. It also had a pie menu, which is a circular pop-up that lets you pick different interaction options when you interact with some sort of object or character. For example, you might be able to pick up, push, taste, or talk to something by selecting different options on this pop-up menu when you're highlighting a specific object or character. In addition to the adventure portions of the game, there were action sequences in which you'd try to fight off rival bikers while riding on your motorcycle. That created a certain arcade element in full throttle. The game received generally positive reviews, though by any measure, it was a pretty short game requiring only about four hours to complete, and that's if you're not even rushing. After full throttle, Schaefer created a game that I think is a real masterpiece. Not just for Schaefer, but for video games in general. I really think it's something special. It's called Grim Fandango. It's another point-and-click adventure game, and it came out in 1998. Grim Fandango, unlike the other adventure games in LucasArts, did not use the Scum engine. Instead, Schaefer's team developed a new game engine called Grim E and a scripting language called Lua. Actually, they didn't develop Lua, but they used it. Rather than pointing and clicking to move your character around, you could use keyboard controls to move about the environment in a tank-like control scheme, meaning you could use certain keys that would allow you to pivot left or pivot right, and other keys would make you walk forward or backward. The game's setting was in the Land of the Dead, inspired by the folklore of Mexico, with a strong film noir motif. The player takes control of a Department of Death employee named Manny Calavera, who must investigate a mystery that suggests there is some high-level corruption going on in the world of death. The game is quirky, it is challenging, and it's filled with tons of nods to classic film noir cinema like Casablanca or The Maltese Falcon. It received critical acclaim, and in 2015 it was the subject of a remastered edition, which has updated controls, graphics, and a commentary track featuring Tim Schafer and other members of the development team. And if you haven't tried it out, I recommend giving it a go. It can be a little frustrating at times, but that's Schafer's style, to present the player with a tricky situation that requires a lot of adaptation to figure out how to get out of it. In fact, Schaefer has talked at length about the tragedy of creating computer tutorials for every single game. He said a lot of the fun he had as a player was learning how a game worked and how you interacted with it and trying to figure out ways to solve puzzles, but that a lot of games these days kind of spell everything out, giving you step-by-step instructions on what you need to do in order to get through a section. And he says, well, where's the fun in that? If I walk up to a puzzle... And then the computer says, hey, why don't you try picking up this thing and using it with that thing? It takes the joy out of that discovery away from me. So Schaefer goes with an approach where he specifically tries to design games that are a little confusing, but intriguingly confusing, not frustratingly so. That's his goal at any rate. However, after Grim Fandango went gold and got 
tons of critical acclaim, he found himself in a bit of a tricky situation. And I'll explain more in just a second, but first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Schaefer's next project at LucasArts never saw the light of day. It was a project meant for the PlayStation 2, but never really emerged from early development. I don't even have a name for this game, or what it was supposed to be about. It really didn't get very far at all. But around that same time, there was a shift in LucasArts away from the adventure-style games that Schaefer had really cut his teeth on. And Schaefer himself wanted to try something new and develop his own company with his own identity and culture. He had worked for LucasArts for a decade, and so he thought, maybe it's time to strike out on my own. And so Schaefer, along with a few other LucasArts employees, left to found a new game studio called Double Fine Productions in June 2000. The first game to come out of Double Fine was Psychonauts a few years later, and that's a platforming game in which you play as Raz, a psychically gifted young boy who infiltrates a special summer camp for kids with superpowers. And the real purpose of the camp is to train kids to become special agents called Psychonauts, which is a job that Raz would really like to have. He discovers there's something hinky going on at the camp, and the story unfolds from there. And again, it received really great reviews, but sadly, sales were a little lackluster. The next title from Double Fine and Schaefer was Brutal Legend, and Brutal is a really good name for the process of what the company went through when trying to bring this game to life. Uh, Brutal Legend is a real-time strategy action-adventure game that had a heavy metal soundtrack, an extensive one. Schaefer wanted to combine elements of fantasy and heavy metal, largely because a lot of heavy metal albums feature artwork that's inspired by fantasy genre. Just look at any Molly Hatchet album cover and you'll know what I'm talking about. And there were even tons of songs in heavy metal that dealt with fantasy concepts. As Schaefer said... There's heavy metal songs about fighting orcs. Why can't we bring these two things together in a video game? So he thought they were a really great match. And if you want to talk soundtracks, Brutal Legend has got to be up there. I mean, the game has more than a 100 licensed heavy metal tracks from bands like Motorhead, Judas Priest, Black Sabbath, and Kiss, among others. The protagonist of the game is voiced by Jack Black of Tenacious D., And there's even a Tenacious D song on the soundtrack as well. And there's even a track from the cartoon death metal band Death Clock in there. His company developed the game, but they found it difficult to get a publisher. Too many companies had misgivings about the real-time strategy elements. Originally, Sierra Entertainment, which was part of Vivendi Games at that time, was going to publish Brutal Legend. But then Activision acquired Vivendi and Activision backed out of the agreement. According to Activision CEO Robert Kotick, dropping the game was not done just on a whim, but rather because the team was falling behind on deadlines. They were missing those deadlines, and he felt that the game didn't look like it was going to be any good. So I guess it was nothing personal. It was just business. But the story goes that Double Fine didn't find out about their game being dropped by Activision until they saw a press release for upcoming titles from Activision that failed to have Brutal Legend on it. And that's how they found out their game was not going to be published. 
Schaefer was not allowed to talk about the status of the game while his team looked for another publisher. They eventually found one in Electronic Arts, or EA, but then Activision sued Double Fine, saying that the company had invested millions of dollars in this game and that some other publisher shouldn't be able to just sweep in and become the benefactor for the company and thus realize all the profits out of the investment from Activision. And anyway, Activision and Double Fine were still in negotiations to publish this game in the first place. Double Fine countersued Activision, saying, no, you dropped this game. It severed all obligations because you you pulled your support. And things got really heated. Schaefer was clearly affected by the situation in a really negative way. And before the matter could receive an official court decision, the parties settled out of court under a private agreement. Brutal Legend published under EA. Again, the game got great reviews, but sales just didn't follow suit. Part of the problem may have been in the marketing. Schaefer's team had set out from the beginning to create a real-time strategy action-adventure game. But RTS games were a bit in a bit of a lull and EA seemed less inclined to market a game that was in that genre. So instead, marketing focused on Jack Black's involvement and the heavy metal angle, but not so much on the actual gameplay inside the game. And gamers may not have known what the game actually was like, and therefore they just never bothered to pick it up. The first two titles from Double Fine were praised for their design, their story, their execution. The problem was, people just weren't buying the games. Morale was at a low point for Double Fine, and Schaefer was feeling it too. Actually, during the production of Brutal Legend and before its publication, Schaefer made a decision. The game's development had taken much longer than anticipated. The delays were really wearing the team down. The publishing woes were incredibly stressful. And what had started out as a passion project about heavy metal and fantasy had become a source of stress and anxiety. And so Schaefer instituted what he called the Amnesia Fortnights. The Amnesia Fortnights was a type of work retreat. Everyone at the company was to stop work for two weeks. They were all to divide up into four different teams, and each team was to come up with an idea for a game. This exercise was meant to be a fun distraction for Double Fine employees. It would turn out to be a solution to save the company. But I'll talk more about that in our next episode about Tim Schafer. For now, it's time to say goodbye to all our company. But if you have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a technology, a person in tech, maybe there's someone you want me to interview on the show, I would love to get Tim Schafer on here to talk about his philosophy in game design, and the challenges that he's faced. That would be fantastic. But if you have suggestions for people I should talk to or subjects I should cover, please let me know. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. And I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 